0: Ohio's expanding access to parole hearings for people who've been incarcerated since they were children. It will no longer sentence minors to life without the possibility of parole, and it will significantly curtail sentences that effectively amount to the same. Senate Bill 256 was signed into law by Ohio Governor Mike DeWine on January 16th. The bill is retroactive and only affects parole eligibility. It does not guarantee that anyone will be released. Under the new law, people who committed a crime as a minor will be eligible for parole after no more than 18 years of incarceration if the crime did not involve homicide, or after no more than 25 to 30 years if it did. Ohio is the 24th state, plus DC, that will stop imposing sentences of juvenile life without parole. A wave of states have adopted similar reforms since the Supreme Court ended mandatory life without parole sentences for minors in a series of early 2010s rulings. Brooke Burns, who heads the Ohio Public Defender's Juvenile Department, stresses that SB-256 will also help the state confront significant racial inequalities in its prison population. These inequalities stem from disparate sentencing, but also the rate at which children of color are transferred to adult court. 94% of those who were transferred to adult court in 2018 were Black. In Ohio, the practical effect of SB-256 will largely depend on the state's parole board. The Legislative Services Commission has already projected that the board will reject most of the parole petitions it considers. People denied release will get another hearing no less than five years later. The parole board has been denounced for its lack of transparency and its stringent standards towards even minor infractions that people accrue while in prison. A new report on prison food by the advocacy group Impact Justice is based on surveys of 250 formerly incarcerated people in 41 states and interviews with 40 current and former prison staff. 94% of survey respondents said they received insufficient quantities of food and never felt full, and 75% said they had received spoiled food, including moldy bread, sour milk, rotten meat, and slimy salad. The food problem is a factor in why incarcerated people are over six times more likely as the general population to experience foodborne illnesses. States pay an average of well under three dollars per person per day to feed inmates. Lawmakers in some states have lowered the cost of feeding inmates by decreasing the number of meals served or hiring private contractors to supply the food. In some states, incarcerated people have filed civil rights lawsuits alleging that the portions they receive aren't large enough to fill a five year old. Cutting costs has led not only to smaller portions, but also to lower meal quality. The food lacks vital nutrients and is high in salt, sugar, and refined carbohydrates, foods that are associated with type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and heart disease. Those conditions are present at higher rates in incarcerated people than in the general public. Up next, we have an audio dispatch from supporters of Dan Baker and Tallahassee.
1: Tallahassee activist and former YPG volunteer Dan Baker was arrested by the FBI on January 15th After calling on comrades to help defend Florida's capital against armed white supremacist attackers, who he feared would follow the example set by the previous week's insurrection. Baker is being held without possibility of bail in Tallahassee's Federal Detention Center on charges of interstate communication of a threat based on alleged social media posts that culminated in a call for armed solidarity. If convicted, he could face up to five years of prison time and massive fines. This arrest comes as Florida considers a repressive anti-protest bill, HB1 SB484, drafted in the wake of this summer's BLM demonstrations. Florida organizers believe that Baker's arrest foreshadows the repercussions of this bill, which effectively makes protests punishable with felony charges, stripping those convicted of the right to vote. In the months before his arrest, Baker traveled to lend medical support in Seattle's autonomous zone, spent his time in Tallahassee teaching yoga and self-defense to marginalized community members, and delivered food to the houseless community. His many friends are calling for support and solidarity for someone who has given so much to support others. Please reach out to at Gorilla Gallery TLH on Instagram to learn how you can support Baker.
0: And now we have a PSA sent to us from the Tucson Anti-Repression Committee.
1: This call is now being recorded.
2: I wanna make music that's important, Not music for everyone, just music for kids like me to adore it. Adore, adore. adore. I wanna buy a used hearse, put a sound system in it and floor it you're like me, you won't buy the song, you'll download it in a torrent. I want to make music that's all bars, no hook and no chorus. Popular music and popular people, it's time for the emo kids to flourish.
1: This call is now being recorded. This call is now being recorded.
0: This call, this call, this call, this call is now being
2: recorded. I said some things on Facebook I shouldn't have, and sure enough, it got the police showing up. Someone recorded me getting hazed, and this is how I planned on blowing up. I just wanted to shed light on scrutiny. Got pulled over after speaking my mind, and now I'm worried about the police shooting me. I don't want to overthrow the government mutiny, I just want to change the bad things. Why are cops allowed to kill us? I'm just asking. Even though I'm sitting in jail, I'm glad things I've done inspire you. Never be afraid to speak the tired truth. If you're speaking your mind freely, then I admire you. We got Donald out of office, and how's that feel? We fired you. We fired you. We fired you. We fired you.
3: The rap you just heard was written by Lauren Reed in his Arizona prison cell and recorded during a phone call with supporters over a line actively monitored by the FBI. Lauren's a 26-year-old native man from Page, Arizona, who faces up to 10 years in prison for Facebook comments made in a private chat that the FBI and federal prosecutors have deemed threats. Lauren has been held in federal pretrial detention for eight months after the courts repeatedly rejected his request that he be released pending trial. Lauren is charged with one count of threats to damage and destroy a building by means of fire which carries a maximum sentence of 10 years in prison and a fine of up to $250,000. The charges stem from comments Lauren made in a private Facebook chat while planning a protest against police violence in his hometown. The summer's protests, which brought more people into the streets than any protest movement in U.S. history, have also led to a wave of repression against activists. Lauren is just one of the hundreds of people now facing repression. In the police and FBI's decades long war against dissent in this country, the case of Lauren Reed is a battle they're certain they can win. The outcome of his case will have implications for Lauren's young life, but it will also have rippling effects on the social movements emerging so powerfully this year from the historical wreckage of McCarthyism, COINTELPRO, the Green Scare, and the post 9 11 clampdown on dissidents. The wave of protests that emerged in Hong Kong, in Paris, in Beirut and Bogota in 2019 and crashed down on American shores this summer has led to a backlash this fall that threatens to roll back its gains. Lauren's case is evidence of both the ubiquity and power of this movement and the extent to which some will go to stop it. Lauren was easy to target and easy to charge and the government hopes he'll be easy to railroad into accepting a charge that sends a ripple of fear and paranoia throughout the country. Looking at the long history of FBI repression of political movements, one can only conclude they want us quiet and afraid. The case of Lauren Reed is a formidable tool in their continued efforts to intimidate and silence American dissidents. The outcome of Lauren's case is, at this point, uncertain. But we do know that much more than Lauren's fate is on the line. The powerful movements that emerged in the streets this past summer are now facing their inevitable plateau. Confronted by backlash, they can either grow to defend themselves or collapse. To learn ways to support Lauren and those fighting to defend him, follow Tucson Anti-Repression on Instagram or Twitter.
0: This week, we share audio from Penio Choklas, who talks about the ongoing Caging COVID campaign and their upcoming February 1st day of action. As we've previously documented on KiteLine, facilities across the country have systematically failed to protect prisoners from COVID-19 and its uncontrolled spread. We're sharing two testimonies on this horrific failure, both collected by the Cajun COVID campaign, one from Kevin Rashid Johnson in Indiana and the other by Ricardo Pena III. But first, here's more on the Caging COVID campaign.
4: Hey, this is Panayoti Cholkis, organizing with the Caging COVID campaign through Nation Inside. And over the past about eight months, we've been building primarily stories, collecting stories and sharing them about experiences in jails and prisons and detention centers all across the country. That's culminating this coming week, February 1st, next Monday, with a visit to DC to deliver a stack of petitions that we've been gathering to the Department of Justice, demanding a higher priority for addressing COVID-19 in jails and prisons across the country. And along with that, we're also calling for decentralized actions uh, for people to use the nightmare that's been unifying us under this pandemic as a a chance to to connect with people on the inside and the outside about the disproportionate number of cases and deaths occurring uh, was five times higher than outside prisons. People are experiencing COVID-19 and being killed by it. I'm based in Florida. Uh, We've been at the top of the list for quite a while, over 200 deaths that were confirmed. Uh, You know, how many are unconfirmed or occur after people are released, that number is, is really still undetermined and we may never know. But you know, we're looking at this as a chance to usher in a movement that's going to put pressure on the new administration. And we think there's it's an unprecedented opportunity and chance to build around demands that we've been making all year for mass releases, for an end to money bail, for uh, bringing parole back, returning parole to states that for a long time have not had parole or have had extreme sentencing guidelines that keep people locked up for decades who have really no, no reason to still be in prison. So we want to put all these things front and center. February 1st is fast approaching and we know this is one step in a bigger process, but we think this is a very important time to make a big statement and we're asking other people across the country for help and building the hype around this on social media, planning demonstrations at your local jails and prisons that will get attention to people on the inside and to the administration and staff uh, that also work in these facilities. And if you happen to be in the capital of any state in the country, we think the governor's mansions or governor's houses and offices across the country are also an important pressure point because in many cases, governors are a single individual who with a stroke of a pen can and have let people out, they could do that at much greater numbers. And we want to urge that. So, you know, encourage friends and family to get out there at jails and prisons, at pressure points like the governor's mansions, or even out in busy streets, busy shopping areas where you can talk to people, connect with people, even in these circumstances of, you know, social distancing and, and safety around COVID. We've seen the possibility to still be out in the streets safely and responsibly, and we want to support people in doing that. You can find out more uh, by checking the hashtag Caging COVID to see what we're talking about, who's talking about it, and also the organizing that's happened under the hashtag National Freedom Day. For a little bit of background on that, February 1st is a kind of an obscure calendar day where um, the United States recognized both the passing of 13th Amendment almost 100 years prior, and also the signing of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights just the the year prior to, to when they initiated National Freedom Day under Truman. National Freedom Day was signed in through a presidential proclamation recognizing the supposed end of slavery and the wholehearted support. The quote from Truman was wholehearted support for the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Here we are now over 150 years past the 13th amendment being signed and 70 years past the universal declaration of human rights. And if you're in a prison or jail in the United States, you could easily never uh, know that either of those things had occurred. And so we want to take February 1st to change that, take this obscure governmental holiday and put a social movement force behind it to expose that, you know, the loophole in the 13th amendment uh, actually retained slavery inside jails and prisons and uh, the universal declaration of human rights is really just an empty document if it's not being practiced by countries like this that are uh, global powers but then subject people to utter brutality and misery and and being buried alive under the prison system so that's what's going on for february 1st and uh, the cajun covid movement that will surely continue after february 1st unfortunately it's looking like we're gonna be talking about COVID for quite some time into this year and, and maybe next. But we know that as the vaccines begin to roll out outside of prisons and people are talking about it less on the outside, uh, it's a very good chance that the experienced people on the inside is, is gonna become less front and center. And so strategically, we wanna make sure that while people are talking about on the outside, that support is maximized for people on the inside, that they don't become invisible again. We've seen more headlines about the conditions in jails and prisons over the past six months and probably previous years prior to that. And so we want to make the most out of that. So as we're talking to people on the inside and and as I've been hearing from family members and individuals directly, you know it was almost like two categories of stories we're hearing one is from the thousands of people who have experienced COVID symptoms and have had to deal with you know an extreme sickness with the like least possible available medical care the lowest standard of medical care that exists within within the, the u.s prison system and so that's that means you know in some cases weeks of respiratory problems, suffering alone, a lot, in a lot of cases and uh, isolation, or in these quarantine units where there are a bunch of other people that are also sick, which means conditions are quality of life, if you can even call it that, is even worse because it's sick people isolated altogether, in some cases cleared out gymnasiums where they're all piled in. You know, but the other category of people who are not experiencing symptoms or testing positive is that the use of isolation has increased exponentially and other aspects of conditions that were already horrendous inside, you know, really across the board, prisons and jails. So, you know, while the call for social distance and the ability to be separate from from people to avoid uh, the likelihood of getting infected with a virus outside is a, a major demand and a necessity, You on the inside, that looks like the increase of, solitary confinement and so additional demand of that stop exposing people to the virus because you know it should be considered a violation of cruel and unusual punishment a constitutional violation if you can't provide medical care adequate uh, for people but the use of solitary confinement also should fall in that category excessive extreme prolonged exposure to solitary confinement that we know is harmful and dangerous even outside of a pandemic i think is even more so torture and um, detrimental to mental health and unjustifiable. You know, if there ever was a justification, I believe there is not. But if there ever was, I would think that leaving people in solitary just because you know a pandemic requires it really doesn't meet this, any standard of, of basic human rights. You know, if you can't, if the state has custody of people and can't take care of them uh, to a basic level, you know, I think it loses any sort of. Uh, ability to maintain the trust or respect from public mandate to keep people in custody safe from these sort of harms. So we want to amplify that and put pressure on it, and really uh, frame it. Make sure we're framing it in, a, in an abolitionist framework, not getting dragged into you know reformist tendencies around it. Although we we do want to see you know bread and butter daily improvements for people's conditions and releases to the greatest extent possible as soon as possible. We also want to make sure that our messaging and our vision is one of abolishing a prison system that really you know, didn't have any sort of legitimacy prior to the pandemic, and now a light has been shined very brightly on, on why that's the case. We want that to be the framework, and that's where we're coming from. So to find out more information, we're encouraging people to check out the resources at nationinside.org, and the hashtag CajunCOVID campaign is housed there, so you can find out Uh, specifically the petition that we've launched against the Department of Justice, and help us build momentum around that. You can find out at this point, there's about 70 other organizations that have signed on to endorse this call to action, this campaign, and we're hoping more will join. You can can see that list on the website. And you can also find on our social media accounts, specifically our Facebook account, that's the most active, uh, where we've been organizing, you can gather the stories, uh, Facebook mission inside. You can also find links to reports. For example, we just today posted the UCLA report on COVID-19 exposure. It's very thorough. If you haven't seen that yet and you're doing any sort of research as a academic, as a advocate or activist or journalist, then we highly suggest starting there, the COVID-19 behind bars data project. From there, you'll be led to dozens of other resources and websites that have been documenting COVID cases and deaths throughout the country over the past year. We also are you know, coordinating with several other organizations. And so we want to encourage and people to, to track down their local activists and prison abolitionist organization and either get involved with the work they're doing or encourage them to come up with a plan for what uh, you're going to do locally on February 1st.
0: The following are stories collected during this time about prisoners' experiences with COVID and isolation during the pandemic. Here's Rashid speaking last September on conditions in Indiana.
5: Uh, there is really no protections at all against people catching, you know, COVID-19. They're just leaving prisoners pretty much to either, you know, contract the virus, free the virus, or die from the virus. I've been... Uh, Here in Indiana, since when the pandemic first struck, basically they did nothing. Operations continued as usual at the institution. You know, there were never any masks distributed. There was no hand sanitizer, no sanitation supplies given to the prisoners to clean their cells, you know, guards didn't wear masks. Any movement up and down the corridor to and from the cells, you have to pass directly. Other prisoners, you have to pass close, hopefully in front of their cells um the recreation, child hall, et cetera, is generally in a crowded formation. They would give us like a bar of soap every every few weeks. One bar of soap would last no time. If you wash your hands continuously or probably last you a few days, there was a high incidence of, of people coming down with COVID nineteen in the uh you know, the Indiana Department of Correction. Over half of the prisoners in our cell block went on a hunger strike. It's a three hundred man cell block and demanded that they issue us, you know, the PPE, um, that they give us uh, cleaning supplies for the sales, that they do testing for everyone, that they provide us meals that, you know, afforded us basic nutrition. The meals that we were provided, six sandwiches per day, you know, processed um, lunch meat, foods that would increase the chances of us contracting the virus as opposed to helping strengthen our immune system they began uh probably uh several weeks later to issue that they put our building on quarantine after we um we started the protest because a day later one of the prisoners in our and our cell block died from covid 19 to be rushed to the hospital and he died the next day from covid 19. they acted as if they were taking quarantine measures they moved several prisoners into the gym and then they turned around and they had a prisoner who they said tested positive for COVID-19 and they tried to put him in the gym with everybody who was just, they felt was symptomatic, but had not tested positive. After a while, even the the pretenses that taking uh, precautionary measures and provide protection, that even died down. So that now when I left, and I left uh, Pendleton, September the 3rd, Everything was just back to, you know, normal. Things were just being operated as they had before the old COVID-19 thing uh, came about.
0: Here is Ricardo describing the lethal carelessness of forcing huge groups of prisoners together for showers. Getting, uh getting
2: uh, some kind of federal definitively during this COVID COVID era, and not only that, um, it's less work, so they're it, getting paid more to do less because they're keeping us locked down. You know what I'm saying? In the same zone, we barely get rent, we barely get canteen, but what's making a, 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 a hope for them is they don't have to escort us to the shower. You know what I'm saying? Without bringing them, bringing us our trade. so that without us getting the the, the 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 recreation, outside recreation and things of that nature, that that's best work for them. All I'm saying they gotta do is bring us our trades and count them. three, four, five times a day and it's just getting it's getting frustrated for us because we're not getting this hand sanitizer. Things that you know what I'm saying, I can keep the anxiety down if a person feeds around me. And we're we, are over, we are already overcrowded, but it's impossible to social distance when somebody might sneeze, cough, or even fall around you. You feel me? We in a two man cell that's like six by nine inches, and they talk about social distance. You know what I'm saying? It, it, it's like a, 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 a it's contrary, it's contradicts What 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 the what the medical what the CDC what they, what they recommend. So I believe um instead of that the the officers run run the camp the comp the prison compound, I believe it needs to be a a, a medical based camp during this quarantine. That's all I gotta say
5: for right now.
0: Thanks to everyone who helped bring this episode together. We'll have links to their resource pages on our new website, KiteLineRadio.org, where you can search through all 236 episodes of the show, including many episodes about the impact of the coronavirus pandemic across U.S. prisons. Again, that's KiteLineRadio.org. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana 47402. Please keep sharing the number for our coronavirus hotline. We'll continue to air messages from prisoners who call in from the inside and family members calling in for support for their loved ones. You can call in on behalf of a loved one or they can call in to record their message about the impact of the coronavirus on their facility at 765-343-6236. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at KiteLine at wfhb.org. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.